Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six and a half years. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them up with... What you doing down here, you shawnee man? Oh, my David, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy here with Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hi, guys. Hello there, on. The Sunday papers were full of Jack Reedish talk. Shay Given reckons it should be straight into the Republic of Ireland squad. Republic of Ireland manager Martin O'Neill isn't so sure about that. And Stephen Hunt says there's a touch of the Stephen Ireland's about Grealish and how the players might view him whenever he does decide to play for us. Well, O'Neill and Hunt might not have to worry about any of that after Grealish's outstanding performance at Wembley yesterday again. He could be uh, Roy Hudson bound. Yeah, I think so. Everybody um, saw it. I think all the English media are suddenly um, saying... Know who Jack Grealish is. Yeah, this guy, wow. Uh, he certainly comprehensively outshone Raheem Sterling, who has been described as the best young player in Europe by um, sections of the English media over the last few months. So that's um, that's a, a good way to sort of announce your presence as a, as a kind of an option. I mean, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, um, It's worse as well that the, the Sterling, for a lot of reasons, the Sterling comparison, it suits a lot of people to make that comparison when Raheem Sterling is asking for as much money as he is. Yeah. Um, well, the comparison is yeah. all bad news for us. I mean, we're thinking of it from a purely Irish-centric view here. If Raheem Sterling, if it was another team that he'd done that against, a team that didn't have a teenager or someone just out of their teens asking for well over, well over 100 grand a week, yeah. then, you know, it it could have played a little easier into our hands, but... All in all, a bad, bad day at the office for Irish football. Don't forget Coutinho as well. I mean, Coutinho was nominated for Player of the Year, and and Grealish was the more decisive player in the game. Like Coutinho scored a goal, but it was really no goal. It's not gonna. It's not actually gonna go in. I don't think unless it gets a deflection. So uh, it's some performance on a big stage, and especially in the light of O'Neill's comments that the Scotland game would be too big. Yeah, we'll get into that now in a second. I do, I do just want to mention. I was watching the highlights last night, and uh, Martin Keown. They were doing post match analysis, and they were showing both the Villa goals, same three players involved in all of them. And I thought at the point, I, I, I lost who they were talking about. I thought they were still talking about Jack Grealish. When Martin Keown said, yo, this will do wonders now for his England career in the future. He can come to Wembley and be really confident having dominated today's game. And I was thinking, 
are we wound? I was go- ah, Martin. Of you of all pe- people, Martin. You know, you've got yeah. Irish blood there too. Irish blood flowing. Heart. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, are we round? It was actually Fabian Delphi was talking about. Yeah. So I didn't have that. Uh, yeah, nothing to get too worked up over. Ken Early's report on sport. I mean, Delphi was terrific as well. You know, we don't want to say it was all Grealish is doing the win. He was one of three key players for Villa. The others being Delph and Benteke. Um, Benteke, the top scorer in English football since the arrival of. Tim Sherwood, who's certainly managed to whisper him back into form. Um, but, uh, I mean, Grealish, the, what was amazing about it was this self-possession. You know, how, how does he look like he has so much time every time he gets the ball? You know, this is not... He's making this look a lot easier than it really is. Um, he wasn't rushing anything. And that's usually what a player like that, who's, you know, like a... You imagine an eager little yapping dog who's suddenly given a, you know, oh, it's the most exciting thing ever. You know the way when a dog gets excited, it starts sort of running around and loses its mind. Uh, that sometimes happens to young players. Uh, when you put them into a big game like that, you know, they want, they want to try so hard to impress. I mean, it's like Brendan Rodgers was saying, you want to win so badly that you just completely lose your mind. That was more or less how he, yeah. how he justified what, what uh, happened to Liverpool yesterday. But uh, Grealish didn't rush anything. He was completely... Uh, calm when he was on the ball. How is he so calm? How do, what gives him the right to be calm? Here he is playing the biggest game he's ever played in. He's played very, very few games for Villa. Two starts for them. You know, a few substitute appearances. No 90-minute appearances for Aston Villa. And he just looks completely at home. Yeah. When have you ever seen James McLean look at home, look as assured, look as calm, as composed as that in a, big, in a game of that scale? When have you ever seen Aidan McGeady do it? Aidan McGeady, who's, what, 28 years old now? Well, 20, I, I think... 29 years I, old now. The Aidan McGeady comparison is probably a fairer one in that James McLean is not a player who plays his best football when calm. I don't, I don't think. Mm. I, you have to channel the aggression that he has, but he, a lot of his qualities are based on... Uh, I don't think anyone would describe him as a footballer who w- will pick a pass like the other guys you described there. Aidan McGeady should be a bit more composed and not, so, not even composed, a bit more dominant in games. This is the problem with McGeady, that he drifts in and out and there mightn't be an end product. Whereas with the, Also, we're, this is great... Greedish could end up fizzling out, could end up uh, not being as good as he's being cracked up to be, but he looked good, yes. Could could do, although it doesn't look like it, um, I have to say. <laughs> really doesn't look that way. Yeah, all we can go is uh, go on is massive cup semi-finals I against mean, better teams. O'Neill well, is talking about guys older than him being nervous. You know, it's not his fault if there's guys older than him who don't have the mentality to play in these games. Uh, O'Neill pointed out that, you know, I think... Um, I've, you know, when I was talking to him, you know, talking to his father, and that this was sort of before the start of the season, around the start of the season. Jack, I bet he would have said to you. I haven't asked him this question, and he said, "But I bet he would have said to you, I'll have played fifteen. I'll have started fifteen to twenty-two games by now." And you know what? He hasn't. And the point there being, well, the player's progress has not really kept pace, maybe with his own expectations, or maybe he's maybe he's got a slightly inflated self-image in, in the sense that he hasn't quite managed to make the strides yet. Who who made that call, though? Paul Lambert. Paul Lambert, the sacked manager of one of the worst Aston Villa teams anyone can remember. An Aston Villa team that couldn't score. For some reason, Paul Lambert thought that this guy, Jack Grealish, could not improve his team. Now, Paul Lambert was wrong. He's really, it's really obvious that Paul Lambert was totally wrong. He should have been playing him. He wasn't. That's a mistake. One of the mistakes that ultimately got him sacked. Why should we follow his lead? Why should Paul Lambert's failure to realise that this guy was actually one of his better players dictate whether we uh, consider him to be one of our better players? A Martin O'Neill disciple, Paul Lambert? 
Lambert play? Well, Lambert played for O'Neill. Martin O'Neill, yeah. Played for O'Neill at Celtic, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if they're necessarily similar ways of thinking massively close, but, you know, he, they do obviously have a, have, a, have a professional relationship going back a while, whether it's, whether it's particularly active or dormant, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Is there not an element that we're kind of holding O'Neill's remarks published on Sunday morning, given to the Irish uh, Sunday papers on Thursday, Yeah, up after the game and saying that what he said on Sunday morning is what he will then think at 5 p.m. on Sunday afternoon. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and we, you know, we do have to make it, it is. It could be that O'Neill was watching that and like the like the rest of us going, OK, you know, this, this, <laughs> this changes things. Yeah. You know, this is a, this is a, this does change things. Um, and that could very well be the case. And I hope that is the case. Um, but, you know, there's just this kind of voice of conservatism. Why are we always so conservative? I mean, when Trapattoni was doing it, I kind of thought, well, Trapattoni's Italian. He's, you know, in his mid-70s. It, Italy is a kind of gerontocracy anyway. Uh, you know, in, in Italian football, a 25-year-old is still considered to be a baby. You know what I mean? A 19-year-old is effectively, you know, is, is, is not is not really worth speaking about. You know, he, he, he had a really conservative attitude. I thought, okay, well, it's to do with his, his Italianness, his, his, his own great age. Um, but here's Martin O'Neill kind of sounding quite similar to me. You know, I think, I, I wonder why are we so conservative in this country? Always football or politics or whatever it is, we, we stick to conservatism all the way, even though it always fails. <laughs> it always fails as we never try anything else. I mean, Keane, I remember Keane talking about it. Keane obviously is involved here as well. He was the assistant manager at Villa for a while. I'm not. I'm sure he wasn't picking the team at Philip, but you know he he got to see Greatish in training. Remember when he was talked about him? He he had that thing to say about oh Jack's dad. Uh, he didn't seem too happy about the role Greatish's dad was playing that. But he did say at one point, and it sounded as though he was. It was again this sort of whoa, steady here, people. That's no all goals, no assists. Yeah, he hasn't it? scored. Yeah. Jackie hasn't started a game. He hasn't scored a goal. Hasn't got an assist. Maybe if he's on the field a little bit more, these things start to happen, and lo and behold, there he is in the FA Cup semi final. A real player, though, would have met his presence felt. You know, he doesn't have to be on the field, does he really, to score a goal? Or to yeah, have an assist. Yeah, or to have an assist. You know, like, again, it's you're looking back at, uh, you know, like a, what was definitely a failed managerial team there in Lambert yeah. and Keane, um, and maybe putting words in their mouths afterwards. But, I mean, after yesterday, you would be inclined to think, God, that was a major, major error they made throughout this last season. We're going to talk more about Grealish a little bit later on, Ken, so why not focus on the other side of things? I noticed Brendan Rodgers wasn't trying to, in fairness to him, wasn't trying to claim anything other than Liverpool deserved to lose this game. Well, Although he did have the special words for Mario Balotelli, we thought had done well up front. Apparently he thought Mario Balotelli did well up front. Yeah. Um, I don't know how he, how he figured that. Put himself about a bit, I think, got a few headers in. I mean, this did, is, did he? Did he? Well, he, got, I remember he, well, missed, he, he missed. He missed one header. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it was offside anyway, didn't it? Uh, he, there was another one where the ball came in, and I think Balotelli, as usual, is offside, uh, and he and he kind of didn't make any meaningful contact with the header. Kind of skimmed across his face. The one I'm thinking of was when he made two headed it, contact and headed it well over the bar. Um, I just don't understand why you put Mario Balotelli on in a game like that at all. I really don't understand. I honestly believe that there are days when it's worse. To have Mario Balotelli in your team than to have a player sent off. He is... No, he's worse. Because if you've got a man sent off, your 10 men are gritting their teeth and, and trying even harder to try and make up for it. You, you hope. You know, they haven't... You, ideally, your 10 men haven't just run up the white flag and gone, well, we've, we've lost the man. We, we have no hope now. With Balotelli, 
you've got a guy who is not going to actually do anything, but apart from act as a decoy, attracting the ball from players on your team, uh, who you know uh, who are kind of under the false impression that this guy is a, is a, is a, a teammate who might actually make a meaningful impact and are passing him the ball more in hope than expectation, and nothing's going to happen. He's not going to do anything. You know, his first in, involvement in the game was as usual to fall over and to appeal to the referee weekly for a free kick, which he was not going to get. He can't uh, shoot. He can't head the ball. He doesn't really participate creatively in the build-up play. He's always offside. And when you're chasing a game like that, that breaks up the game continually. Takes the pressure off the opposing team, gives them lots of little breaks, they get, they get free kicks. It demoralises his teammates because of his lack of uh, attitude and his lack of impact. Worse than 10 men, in my opinion. Paul Lambert had scored a goal, uh, scored a winning goal against Aston Villa at Villa Park early. Paul Lambert? Ricky Lambert, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Paul Lambert's reign of misrule never quite extended to scoring a winner, <laughs> banging in a winner against Villa at Villa Park. Ricky Lambert uh, did score. Now, it's, it's, a, it's among the only things that he has done. Um, but, you know, he's, he, if you look at his goals per minutes record, even that's better than Balotelli. We're talking about Ricky Lambert here. Yeah. I'm not talking about a guy with a massive goals per minutes record, but it is better than Balotelli's. Why you would use Balotelli in, in that situation, it really beats me. Surely the teammates, they've seen Balotelli play quite a lot now. They know what he doesn't give to the team. Mm. And they, if they approached it, does Steve Peters work with all the Liverpool players or just Stephen Gerrard? Uh, I think Steve Peters is kind of on a general, he's, he's available. He's available to those Liverpool players. He should be. Uh, I'm not sure how this fits in with the his chimp paradox theory again, but they should essentially uh, just decide that look, we've got a guy up front who basically isn't playing. We've only got ten men. Hmm. Um, but he, but he can still be called. It. He can still be called offside. Though. But that doesn't help matters, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, if he's not interfering with play, then not. But often, if he's you know moving towards the, the ball, the offside argument, in fairness to Ken, is the silver bullet in this. <laughs> Um, but you know there was there was multiple changes of formations from from Liverpool. It seemed as though they didn't really have a very clear idea of what they were trying to do at any point in the game, uh, and obviously they, they they never managed to put it together. And Rodgers was right when he said the energy was low. You know, even Coutinho, who's usually one of the bright sparks for them, I thought looked kind of slow and a little bit heavy legged, uh, even in the first half. And okay, he ultimately he did score a good goal, but there was nothing. There was no real sense of them being able to force their way back into it. And obviously, Gerard, we haven't even mentioned Gerard. Um, you know, he, he's played in a position which no longer suits him. Um, six or seven years ago, Stephen Gerrard can be effective in that sort of position, a right-sided attacker. Now he can't do it. He doesn't have the, the kind of elasticity, the sort of bounce in his legs that you need. I mean, con- contrast him and Delph, Fabian Delph, the kind of energy that he had, the, the uh, power to get forward into dangerous positions, the way that he... Uh, helped to create the first goal, not just by running past Greedish and crossing the ball, but all the, the original move in midfield past two guys. That's the kind of thing Stephen Gerrard was once able to do and can't do anymore. You, if you're going to use him, you need to have him right at the very back. And all he's doing is giving the ball to guys in more advanced positions. Louis van Gaal, sorry to uh, mm. push you along there, but I, I want to hear this Louis van Gaal clip you can tell me about. We'll hear a bit of Louis van Gaal, and uh, I think this is him uh, talking to, I think it's Guy Mowbray of the BBC after Manchester United lost 1-0 at Chelsea, and he sounds like he's not really in great form. Are you frustrated by what you've seen? I'm not uh, frustrated, I'm very proud of, of my team. Why I have to be frustrated? We, just, just at losing we, the game? We played uh, the best match of the season. Is that, is that how highly you rate the performance, yeah? Yeah, you don't? 
No, I'm just interested in what you, you, how you see it. Okay. That's good. <laughs> that you are interested. You, you changed things around today because you had to. Did it work exactly as you intended it to, with Wayne Rooney back in midfield? And When I say that we have played the best match of the world, and is this a rhetorical question, I think. What about the, the incident at the end? Should you have had a penalty? Then, when you want to evaluate the referee, then also you have to evaluate the first call. And in my uh, opinion, that's the uh, main decision of the referee. Are you taking issue with what you feel maybe, maybe is a foul on Falcao? Maybe you can watch on television <clears throat> repetition, maybe. So you, do you think it was a foul on Falcao in the build-up? Yeah. So, you know that? No. Okay. Thanks, Louis. Oh, little Sarky, I think, is the way to describe that there from Louis. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what what he got, what he was being so sarky about because the questions Mowbray was asking were very innocent. You know, it was just a series of, you know, the usual bland post match questions. Tell us what's on your mind, type things. And here's Van Hal acting. I don't think, I don't think it's going to do many favors. That type of behavior, that kind of, um, that kind of sarcasm is never going to go down. This well. is what people were expecting, though, weren't they? In general, he seems to have been well received by the press, but certainly the advance. Publicity was this guy is at some point going to stamp down upon you guys. Mm. Was it not kind of the fact that the football had been so terrible that he he realised that to come out and be unbelievably sarcastic to journalists and have that as his default position would not be very helpful when at the, the start. Yeah, when the football maybe, maybe so it's bad. a bit of a strength of uh, a position of strength now that yeah. he's well. The football got good and then better. he had one bad result and so. He thought maybe now would be a good time to unveil. So if Manchester United become champions next season, oh, prepare forget for full it. Louis sarcasm. Yeah, I, I don't. So. I don't think it ever ever is a good idea actually to behave that way. I don't really see what advantages is to you. I think from the media's point of view, it's gold. You know, yeah. lots of people watch that interview more than they would watch the usual event. The angry, the angry he gets, the better they like it. You know, the more angry he gets, if they can push his buttons and get him angry like that, that's a dream situation. So I think he's playing into their hands when he does that. I, I mean, the, the, the manager, I think, who is best able to handle the media in the Premier League is Arsene Wenger, by miles. He's been doing it for, what, nearly 20 years now. He's been hanging on to his job, despite not really winning a whole lot for a long time. And still, I think most people reckon that's fair enough. And he never really loses his temper. I mean, he, I can think of times when he has, but it's been so long, there's been so many interviews... Usually he just, and this is not a guy who's, who's always had like had it easy. He's had like <laughs> terrible things thrown at him, but always is able to sort of take a deep breath and just answer in a kind of a measured tone. Mm. And that's the best way to do it. You know what I mean? I think it's just the, it's the best long-term way to do it. What Van Halen is doing there, that's everybody, when people see that, they start to smell blood. It's probably not a strategy, though. It could just be that no, he's it's, it's a lack of with whatever. emotional control. Yeah. That's a, it's a lack of emotional control, and, and unfortunately, in the job that he has, you're going to have to deal with these provocations, and you're going to have to deal with them a bit better than that, or uh, they'll actually start coming thick and fast, and that's when the, that's when you start getting real problems. I mean, in this occasion, he was annoyed because Chelsea have managed to beat him. They've had 30% possession at home, Chelsea, and they've still they've won one nil. Um, Mourinho uh, loved this game because it was it was an opportunity to. Look at Manchester United are on a great run. They've beaten all these big teams, and Mourinho is now going to devise a plan to nullify them. 
And part of this plan was Marwan Fellaini. And there's a story today, uh, essentially, that having worked all week on how to snuff out Marwan Fellaini, Mourinho then uh, his, has just had his breakfast or whatever on match day, and he's wandering around the stadium, and suddenly the concierge uh, bumps into him and says, Hey, Jose, um, I've just had Fellaini at the desk here. He's obviously not playing because he's like... He's just come and picked up a couple of tickets for that Eden Hazard left him, and he's like in jeans, and he's not, you know, he's not playing. He must, he must be in the squad. And Mourinho's like, what? <laughs> and uh, he's, I've spent all week making this match ten against ten, and now you tell me he's not playing. What happened? And Concierge says, this guy, like, he arrives at the uh, at the desk, and he says, hey, I'm Fellaini. You know, you got a couple of tickets for me from from Eden Hazard, and so the guy gives him the tickets. And Mourinho's like, this isn't, I can't, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. And um, then a thought strikes him. He starts Google imaging um, Mansour Fellaini, the brother of Marwan, and he's like, "Is this the guy? Is this the guy who came?" And everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that, that's actually that's actually the guy who was here." Ah, <laughs> oh, Well, okay, right. Ten versus ten is still going to be part of the day. Um, so uh, there, and then it became nine versus nine. He brought he brought on Ramirez, the sort of neutralized Shaw. Every decision is is kind of a counter stroke you know what I mean there's no oh let's try this maybe this will unsettle them it's always what are they going to do right how do we rub that out that's what we're going to do it's just so it's so negative you know by definition negative but it does uh, get results his ultimate dream is probably to win a game of football with his team garnering less than 10% possession Oh, that, that would be the ultimate Jose Mourinho masterpiece. Didn't yeah. they do that against Barcelona? Almost. <laughs> it's like 2080 or something, yeah. It's in the, in the cl- close to 2080. And of course, they had a red card in that game as well, so that was great. That's, yeah. That's, um, you get bonus Jose points for that. Um, but but in this, uh, you know, he, he praises Hazard. Hazard is, uh, was amazing. And Hazard is so good that he's almost like two, he's like two players. You know, it's like uh, you can have a, a nine-man nine of your outfield players defending and then it's almost still like you've got two attackers with uh, with Hazard playing the way that he was yesterday uh, they're all praising him and uh, talking about how amazing he is and he will uh, surely be the player of the year but the one big other story I want to talk about is something that actually first emerged on Thursday uh, this was after our last uh, podcast and it's kind of been rumbling on over the weekend this is what's happened at Bayern Munich um they lost, obviously, Porto. We did talk about that. But what happened then on Thursday afternoon was that Hans Wilhelm Müller-Wolfart, who is the uh, doctor of Bayern, and quite a striking figure if you've ever seen him. He's like 72 years old, but he looks like 40, uh, like a 40-year-old with a hair transplant. I don't know if he's had a hair transplant, but he looks like a vampire. You know, like a, he's got this unlined face, uh, glossy black hair in kind of curtains, you know, on each side, right? And you're thinking, this is weird. This guy's supposed to be 72 years old. What is going on with this guy? What is the secret of this guy? And he obviously knows something about, um, I'm not saying he's got the elixir of youth or that he's bathing in virgin's blood or whatever else, um, you know, these mysterious figures in gothic uh, horror fiction, however else they've been able to maintain their youthful appearance for all these years. But he does have a, um, a massive list of international uh, clients, not just from the world of sport, but also, you know, international celebrities, Bono, people like this. Doctor to the stars, they call this guy. Doctor to the stars and doctor to Bayern Munich since April 1977. Um, a long time, yeah. but no longer because he 
announces uh, that in the wake of the Porto game, the medical team has found itself uh, inexplicably blamed for the defeat and uh, for that reason we're leaving. So he leaves with his son, uh, Killian, and a couple of others. Um, they all just resigned. Now, this is, a, this is a big story because this guy is, f- is famous. He's the doctor, doctor of the national team as well, the doctor of the German national team. He's the most famous sports physician, certainly, probably the most famous doctor in Germany, has been associated with Bayern for so long, for generations of players, uh, respected by generations of players, including some of those currently there. You, you get people like Bastian Schweinsteiger saying, this guy. Schweinsteiger, I mean, I was reading some stuff with him, goes to this guy for, you know, 10 injections on a quite regular basis in the back. You know, he, he's quite famous for using this Activision stuff, which is illegal and it's not licensed in the United States or in France. You know, you can, you can go there and, and really? get the power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because that was... Mm, it's licensed. How far as you go? That's, that's, that's one of the uh, substances that came up in the Lance Tyler days. Hamilton, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Lance is, is talking about... Act, I'm supposed to have used this Acto... Whatever it was called. You know, Activision. Uh, you can't use it in France. Uh, but you can use it in uh, Germany. Now, um, anyway, why Guardiola's fallen in with this guy? Why? It seems as though, and in the Marty Perrinard book, the book about Pep's uh, season at Bayern, um, there was a hint of some of this when uh, essentially Pep was puzzled by the fact that Bayern, who are, let's remember, a 400 million euro business, don't have a doctor on site. Why is it that when one of our players gets injured, he has to go down five miles downtown to this guy's clinic to be seen by this guy. He should be here at the training ground. You know, I don't, I don't want a, a player who's maybe broken an ankle to be sitting in a, in a car driving. Down. He, should be, he should be seen here. We can afford to have a doctor. Of course, the fact is it's a relic of the time when a football club couldn't be the main source of income for a doctor, you know, like Muller Wolfhard. I mean, it, it's a kind of a partnership that developed in the 70s and 80s. Um, Bayern get access to a top doctor. He, in turn, gets the publicity associated with being a Bayern, which helps him build his private practice. But the private practice is his main job. You know, that's that's his big earner. Bayern is obviously an, an earner, but it's not like he's not just Bayern Munich's doctor or the German national team's doctor. Um, so obviously that that arrangement maybe now looks a bit antiquated, but it, because it's been it's the way that it has always been a Bayern, nobody there was questioning it, but Pep evidently did. So he's fallen out with this guy. Now it is, there was this vine that went around of Pep uh, at a recent match against Leverkusen, uh, getting quite angry. Mehdi Benadia, the, the central defender, has been injured. They've had lots of injuries. Uh, they've had an unusually bad season for injuries, Bayern. That happens from time to time, though, I think. Is it always the doctor's fault? I mean, this seems to be the thinking in football. It used to be, well, injuries happen. But now it's like, well, if injuries are happening, the doctor's not doing his job. You know, that seems to be kind of the attitude. But Pep turns around and he's there. You can see him clapping really sarcastic. So they're calling it in Germany the Rumpelstiltskin video. Rumpelstiltskin, the evil dancing imp, dancing maliciously around the fire. Oh, I will, I will capture the princess. Uh, my name is Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> capering, around, capering around, clapping his hands. He's clapping sarcastically into the face of the doctors. Not Muller Wolfhard, he wasn't actually there, but apparently his son Killian is there. This is the medical team he's doing this to. Well done, guys. Great job. Great job. Another injury. You guys must be really proud of yourself. Not good, not good behavior from Pep. He's under pressure. He's venting. Still, though, you can't go on that way. And Muller Wolfhard, who I'm sure is going to talk about this, no way he's <laughs> going to go quietly on this one. Um, saying that he was blamed for the Porto thing. So I think that's a serious uh, behind-the-scenes problem. Now, Rummenigge, the, the boss at Bayern, has backed Guardiola. I mean, he's also, you know, had the disagreement, apparently, with 
with Muller Wolfart, Seizing Stone, Guardiola's side. But I think the damage from something like that goes quite deep. You know, this is a, a major figure at the club, trusted by lots of people. Suddenly he's gone and definitely not good. They're playing Porto tomorrow night, and I think that's the one everyone should be watching. That's the end of Kennedy's Report on Sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second cap, first cap, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Jonathan Wilson is ready to chat to us, Jonathan, about what well, we talked a little bit about Jose Mourinho uh, finding a way to nullify Fellaini. And fortunately, uh, <laughs> Fellaini did end up actually playing the match. But uh, they were so effective with no possession, very little possession against Manchester United. Is this the sort of game in which Mourinho really earns his stripes? Yeah, I, mean, I think this is that sort of performance is what a Mourinho team can produce that probably other other clubs at that level can't produce. Uh, that's what sets Mourinho apart. Um, I guess, in, in a sense, it wasn't particularly complicated what he did to stop Fellaini. He just brought in Kurt Zuma to sit on him, and a combination of Zuma and Ivanovic were physically strong enough to to cope with Fellaini. And, and I guess, you know, they're, they're slightly fortunate that Ivanovic is a right back who's um, he's got the build of a centre back. You know, he's, he's not he's not going to get bullied in the air as, as some fullbacks would do, as, as say, um, I know he's a left back, but Gel Clichy. You did get bullied by Fellaini when he um, pulled on them at the back post uh, in the in the derby. So, um, I, I, and I guess that the thing there is, how many other managers would be prepared in a game like that to play a centre back at the back of midfield and say, "Right, we're at home, um, but I don't care about the spectacle. I just want to stop Fellaini. I want to stop him punching holes and see, as he's punched holes in others, and I'm actually quite happy to to draw nil nil." And I think Mourinho has that, yeah, you know, that, that that willingness to 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 play ugly football that maybe managers of other top teams they, they sort of feel a, an obligation to to play slightly more attacking, creative football. He actually likes ugly football, though. This is the thing. He, he prefers it to the kind that everybody else is supposed to like. I mean, why do you think? Why do you think that? How did he end up that way? Um, I mean, I, I think all managers like control. And some managers achieve control by controlling the ball, and some managers achieve control by controlling the space. And Mourinho, I think, is very, very good at, at controlling the space. That although United had all the ball, they had what two or three shots where you sort of thought, oh, "Okay, there's a chance here," um, because Chelsea you know, defended that space in front of the 18-yard box so well. Um, I guess he's he's one of the very few managers who's come through. Uh, one of the few, very few top managers who's come through at the moment who didn't play for Barcelona in the 1990s and a huge number of top managers did uh, four of the eight uh, cham- managers of the, of the Champions League quarter-finalists played for the same Barcelona side he was there though I mean he, he was he, he was, was on the there. coaching staff true. yeah that he sort of reacted against that rather than rather than um, uh, you're following that path um, I guess maybe because he's he's then I was going to say because he's then gone to Porto, he's had a struggle with 
with not having the budget that certain other teams do. But Lapetegui has also gone to Porto and, and plays a, a sort of much more adventurous kind of football. So maybe it's just in him. Maybe you know he's. Uh, yeah, he's he's just. I mean, he seems to 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 revel in the role of being the Dark Lord, doesn't he? He quite he likes being the the pantomime villain, um, and and actually at times just the villain. Um, but he, he you know he 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 revels in that, and I, I guess once you start having success like that, that's what you know and it's what you what what you specialize in. He loves it. I mean, you know, he he exults in these type of games more than anything. I mean, the happiest I think I've ever seen him is when Inter beat Barcelona, and that was a similar. You know, they had even less possession than Chelsea had yesterday, but he was so happy yesterday. I mean, and you could see Roman Abramovich was pretty happy to have won the game as well. But, you know, when you see Chelsea two years into Mourinho's return, um, playing this type of football at home, okay, winning the game, and and obviously they're going to win the league too. But in a season when the other teams haven't really been particularly impressive, I'm not sure how much credit goes with uh, winning the league given the resources that Chelsea have do you think this is a a long a feasible long term way for for Chelsea to play because it's clear that as long as they have Mourinho this is the way they will continue to be he's never going to change he's never going to um he's never going to have you know put together some kind of a fluid attacking guardiola tribute type team it's it's every fiber of his being revolts against it so the question really is um how long do you think Abramovich is prepared to put up with the kind of football that he sacked Mourinho for the last time well, I mean, I think that is a good question. I think Abramovich probably has learned from that experience that that maybe that type of football isn't, you know, it's not possible just to conjure that. You, and, and City's struggles to, to do that, I think, show how, how difficult it is. Um, and I think, to be fair to Chelsea, they did play much more creative attacking football in the early part of the season. And, and actually, the extraordinary thing about this season is that since they lost to Tottenham on New Year's Day, they've only dropped six points. In a period when every game you, you watch them, think, well, they're not really hitting their rhythm, they're not really playing that well. So, and I guess that, again, that's one of the great strengths of the Mourinho that with a side playing not particularly well, a side that looks a bit tired, a side without its two main centre forwards, he finds a way to get a result in a way that maybe the other top teams in the Premier League at the moment aren't doing. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's not like every game has, he's, Chelsea have only had sort of, you know, 27, 28% possession. Earlier in the season, they did play you know, much more proactive football. Um, but yeah, maybe Abramovich will will tire of it. I, I, I suspect that the fact it's sort of taken the best part of a decade to to get back to, to that sort of level maybe will will um, make him less trigger happy. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's clearly not the the, the, the beautiful football that, that a Barcelona or a Bayern produce. Um, but but maybe you know maybe effective is now what Abramovich wants. Manche- yeah, maybe he's he's changed his his spot a little bit. Manchester United. Just just, just going back yeah. to the. I mean, I I almost wonder. Um, it's just when you when you said the, about his soul revolting against this mm. and about being the anti Guardiola. Maybe that actually is the issue now that he's so repelled by Barcelona and you know he obviously feels he was treated badly by Barcelona. Um, that that maybe maybe he's sort of determined to. To to you know, destroy that style of football, to show that that's not the only way, and to show that you know the the the, the sort of myths that build up around Barcelona perhaps aren't aren't as yeah. aren't as thin as they appear. In, in which case, you know, he'd be um, getting deflected from from his job by you know personal vendetta. He'd be Captain Ahab, which would be um, 
which fascinating would be, and great, and ought to be encouraged. It would be brilliant. But you know, it's it's also giving Barcelona way too much credit. It's not as though they're the only team that's ever played nice football in the history of the world. You know, there's other ways to do it. You know, not everything not everything has to be uh, the Guardiola way. It's 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 a false uh, a false dichotomy, I think, between you know what what Chelsea you know, this battle hedgehog uh, type of football Chelsea played yesterday and and Guardiola. There there is uh, more than one way to to play. Yeah, there is more than two um, ways, but, I should say. Yeah, but but at, at the at the moment, I, I think the the sort of dominance at Barcelona school partly because the, you know there has been that great diaspora from the Barcelona squad of the nineties. Um, it, it sort of does feel like there's there's the Barcelona way and the other way, uh, and of course there's ways in the middle and, and and completely alternative ways. But you know that's still the model that everybody sort of refers to. That's sort of the touchstone. Uh, that that's sort of the yeah. This is how a good team should play, and if you don't play like that, it's worthy of comment. Um, so so yeah, it, it's it's not a dichotomy, but you can see why you might feel the, the need to rebel against that. Manchester United uh, played enough encouraging football. You would think that uh, Van Hal mightn't mightn't have been totally. Disappointed with the result, he certainly felt they played amazingly, as he told Guy Mowbray on BBC afterwards. We talked, uh, we played a bit of this clip earlier on. Uh, he seemed particularly irritable in that interview. Went into super sarcastic mode. There's always a hint of sarcasm, I think, waiting to emerge from Louis Van Hal. But uh, what, what had him so angered? Do you think if this is supposed to be a project that really delivers a, a league title challenge in the second year, surely he shouldn't be too disappointed with this defeat. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be slightly surprised if he was genuinely angry. I, I, I sort of got the impression um, that, that it was more he he didn't want this to be a story of Van Gaal's being outwitted by Mourinho. He wanted this to be look, United played quite well, Chelsea happened to get the goal, but this is this hasn't stopped the momentum that United are still going to be going into next season looking far better than than they did going into to this season. So I, I you know I think there's a uh, a, a bit of sort of manipulating the the, the narrative there. Uh, I mean, in, in the written press press comments, the first question was sort of quite a gentle one. He, he sort of asked, you, you know, you, you must be relatively encouraged by how well you played, given the injuries and everything. And, and you know, he, he then comes out with this sort of great pean to the journalist who's asked it and say, you know, you're a man who really understands the game. And then he got chippier later on as a, a couple of harder questions came in. But that was clearly the line he wanted to pursue. That so, who, who was this, the man? Who, who was the man who really understood the game? Phil McNulty from the BBC. Okay. Um, he, he does understand the game, to be fair. I, I think Phil McNulty's a very good judge, so <laughs> maybe um, may, maybe that was just Van Gaal being, being absolutely nice, open yeah. and honest. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I can see why after a defeat like that, which really doesn't matter in terms of the title race, it doesn't matter in terms of United finishing in the top four, you know, the thing you can take out of the game is, is just... You have a sense of look, we outplayed the team who are going to be champions, even though they beat us. We did outplay them, and that means next season we're going to, yeah, we're going to finish above them. Um, I do. There, there is one thing about uh, Van Gaal's management of this squad which does impress me, and that is the way in which um, fringe players or players who have had a bad time at various parts of the season have have come good for him. And Luke Shaw was kind of demonstrating yesterday what he might be able to bring to the team. Uh, gave a, not yesterday, rather Saturday, and uh, this is a guy who Van Hal was seemed very unimpressed by at the beginning of the season. Said this guy is, is not fit. You know, he's not ready for the team. He needs to work. He needs to work a lot harder. And here he is, um, having apparently done all that, actually being quite effective in the team. And 
I kind of feel as though I'd rather be a, a player in a, a Louvain Hall squad than a Jose Mourinho squad. Mourinho, remember, played pretty much the same team for the entire first half of the season. Um, he doesn't really have too much time for squad players, and it seems to me that when you fall from favour with him, you fall for good, whereas Van Hal is actually willing to give players a second chance. It seems as though he's making better use of his resources in that sense. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. No, I, I think it's testament to his qualities as a coach that a huge number of players at United look a better player now than they did in August or than they did last season. I think you can say that of Fellaini, you can say of Young, Shaw, absolutely, Mata. Uh, even Rooney, I think, is, is, you know, looks a more comfortable player now than he did a year ago. So players seem to improve on him. Um, Chris Smalling suddenly looks like a, a centre-back who can actually pass the ball, which I don't think anybody would have thought of him before. Uh, so I, I, you know, that, that suggests that, that Van Gaal does have a positive impact just on how players play, which I guess is actually what the base of the coaching should be. All right, Jonathan, we'll leave it there. Thanks, Bill. Cheers, thanks. Let's just go back to that theory about uh, Jose Mourinho being just repelled by everything that Barcelona stands for and trying to destroy... the myth. Maybe we were conservative in our less than 10% when we were constructing the ideal Jose Mourinho game. Maybe he wants to win on one percent possession. You so just get the ball. Win the game without touching the ball. You have to touch it <laughs> once. You have to touch it's it like once. It's like a Charlie Adam effort from the kickoff. Yeah. That flies into the top corner, yeah. uh, and from there it's a it's an extreme rear guard action. But, but I think if if the goalkeeper has to kick the ball out, that's possession. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know when the clock starts running on on possession. So the keeper collects the ball from the ball boy, trots over, puts the ball down, kicks the ball out. I mean, that's probably got to have you up on three percent, four percent. I don't know. If I think ten percent is a. Is a it, it's like body fat, you know. It's it's impossible really to go much beyond, much below four or three. And probably or 4%. not very healthy. No, it's. I mean, you, you just got to do it. But I, I would be disappointed if that was the case for me because then he would be allowing Barcelona to dictate everything to him. He would be defining himself by defining himself in opposition to them. He's allowing them to to call the shots. I mean, you know what happened to his own sense of. Individuality. We're recording another show today featuring a chat with Martin Fletcher, author of the new book in the Bradford Fire, which you've probably read quite a bit about. It's generated a huge amount of publicity in the last few days. Uh, he's been talking a lot about it and hasn't got a completely positive reaction, certainly. I know Martin himself lost four family members in the tragedy. He was at the game himself as a, as a young lad. Uh, but there are some people in Bradford who I think just don't want this dragged up again. He, he's made certain... Uh, I was going to say made certain allegations. He's essentially presented a lot of facts in there about the uh, owner of the club at the time and many fires at previous business uh, premises of of the owner. So uh, we'll talk to him a little bit about what all of that means and about the reaction he's had to the book. I'm sure a lot of it's been positive as well, I should probably say, but that is in our second podcast today. Now, Miguel Delaney was at Wembley to see Aston Villa beat Liverpool, inspired, Miguel, by Jack Grealish. A uh, real triumph for him. Was he a little... Just in the context of you know Ireland, England, and uh, who exactly he's going to play for, was he a little too good yesterday? Well, that was I was in the mix zone after after the game, and uh, one of the lads who regularly covers Villa just turns to me and go and goes, "That's bad news for you boys." Hmm. Uh, so the, and the feeling among a lot of the guys who locally cover Grealish is that they're skeptical about whether he will declare for us. Um, I, I, I think that's still pure speculation. No one knows what's going to happen with him. But yeah, he, otherwise he was absolutely excellent. 
He ran the game, to be honest. Yeah, and it's a funny one. Uh, he's he was there all season for Paul Lambert to use in a team that completely lacked creative spark. wasn't wasn't used very often. Has got in a little bit more under Tim Sherwood. He's a fun. You, you, I mean, he's a very light looking player, kind of spindly little legs, and so you're not you're not expecting a huge amount from him physically. But he seems to be well able to stand up to the rigors of the game, and and his vision is well. I don't think. Well, well I suppose Wes Hoodland's the only other player we have probably like that. No, that's it. And I mean, as you mentioned, yeah, you would almost expect someone that young and that, um, I suppose, slight looking to kind of be crowded out of these games. But that's it's the opposite is the case. He just takes it all in a stride. He's very, very assertive with the ball. And he actually, I covered Villa last week as well when they beat Spurs. And Sherwood was asked about how it's actually quite rare to put someone that young in a position that's usually for a slightly more mature player number 10 because it, it, it involves a lot of responsibility and Sherwood just kind of went on listen it's he's a guy nothing phases him um, I mean there was that quote Sherwood had as well when he finally told Grealish she was in the team and Grealish responds it's about time now the thing that made it really interesting was that uh, there'd been comments from Martin O'Neill in the Sunday papers and uh, I think he'd been speaking on Thursday but these uh, these comments were published on the morning of the game yesterday uh, and he was essentially um, saying that Scotland game, which is in June, is just is too much too soon for Grealish. He wouldn't be ready for it. Uh, the game's too big for him. Lads eight or nine years older will be nervous going into that game. He doesn't lack confidence, but he's a young lad. I wouldn't be ready to put that type of pressure on some young kid uh, just because he made up his mind up to play for made his mind up to play for us. What do you make of those comments in the light of yesterday's showing from Grealish? I think Grealish absolutely obliterated them. He kind of made a mockery of those comments, really. Um, and even if you think, not just the size of the game, but the personal dimensions for Grealish, because there's been so much in the build-up about his great-grandfather and all that, and even the, the like, Villa situation, having not won a trophy for so long, having been pretty much feeling like a dead club for the past few years because nothing was happening. And on the other side of it, it's slightly concerning O'Neill would make those comments because, I mean, I think the general feeling watching Ireland right now is that we are crying out for something a little bit fresh to inject a bit of positivity and certainly basically to inject a bit of technique uh, closer to goal, which he badly missed, and Grealish offers so much of. And we saw with the, with the two goals yesterday, the, like the, the passing movements, it was, it looked so simple what he was doing, but it had such kind of it created such difficulty for Liverpool. Yeah, I mean throughout this whole thing, I mean I, this Grealish thing's been going on for a while, and Stephen Hunt had, had written a column also in the Sunday Independent yesterday where he was was drawing some comparisons of the Stephen Ireland situation, how that dragged on his exile from the squad, which obviously was different from Grealish in that he had played a few games and then had an exile, whereas Grealish's exile has been before he's actually played any games. Um, and talking about the effect it has on players in the squad and how they get a bit annoyed by it. And I think it's definitely the case that, I remember with Stephen Ireland, the managers didn't want to go chasing him. They felt it was beneath them to do that. And I get the impression Martin O'Neill doesn't want to go chasing this guy either. Because yeah. he, he feels, you know, a player, sh- a player should want to play. A player should want to play. It's not my job to go out there and, you know, beg a guy to play for Ireland. I'm kind of thinking to myself, we've got so few players that actually your job is to beg yeah, players to play for Ireland. I mean, that's what it well, takes. You can, you can appreciate the stance of a certain manager's experience as Martin O'Neill going to kind of, you know, you know almost laying himself out for, uh, for someone so young. But it's the fact that we have very little coming through. We have very little players like him coming through. I mean, it, this could be without getting too overblown after a few performances but it, 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 like he's a guy that could possibly be the future of our, our midfield or attack um, and I think there is a bit of a wider issue here like I've seen a lot of comments about this kind of thing about if he doesn't pick us then or if he doesn't want to play for us then, then we don't want him which I think is actually quite a childish attitude because the uh, the whole notion of a dual nationality is quite complex and, and it's possible that 
he doesn't really know who he, whether he feels Irish or English, more Irish or English himself. He, he probably feels them both equally. Yeah, exactly. This is why um, this is why it, maybe it's important to make him feel wanted. I mean, I can see that certainly happening at the moment uh, from the English side. Everybody is telling him how amazing he is. Um, and I sometimes wonder if maybe um, that was really made obvious enough from our side. I mean, it, it could also be the case that O'Neill is, is taking an even more sophisticated view of this and is saying, well, I don't want to go out in there, uh, there and beg him because he might, he might have that thing of, I don't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. Maybe O'Neill thinks that if he, uh, you know, sort of... Playing, playing hard to get. Yeah. It, it, might, might that be the logic here? Because, I mean, I, I would actually find that more palatable to think of than Martin O'Neill going, well, I'm not going to go and beg some guy. I mean, if he thinks begging would be the, ba- the wrong way to go about it, then I, I can just about live with that. But if he thinks begging is beneath him, I'm sorry, but that's your job. The only thing about that is, from the way Sherwood talked about last week, I'm not necessarily sure that would work with Grealish. It seems like he wants to be wanted. Uh, it is interesting, though, that around Villa, they have a complete lockdown and even discussing the idea. I asked Sherwood directly about it after the Spurs game, and the press officer immediately interjected, saying, we're not, we're not getting into any of that. And even after the game yesterday, Grealish was meant to be put up for the daily newspapers, um, and we, I think we were promised a few minutes with him again. And, and then suddenly... He, he walks by, someone goes, quick word, Jack, and I'm not allowed to talk. And he, it seemed like he actually wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just what you were saying about it's, it's about it's about time I'm in this field squad, apparently what he said to Sherwood. And how those um, how the comments of O'Neill about the Scotland game being too much for him must, yeah, have, must have sounded to a guy of that mentality. I mean, who's he going to be up against uh, if he was to play for Ireland against Scotland? You know, guys who play with... Uh, Bournemouth, Derby, Crystal Palace, yeah. Chicago Fire, you know, West Yeah, I West think Bo- maybe that's Bolton. the line that Martin O'Neill feels he has to put out, but I would imagine it, the issue might be more to the point. I'm destabilising. I've had a long time getting this squad together, this squad of players. And the squad I, that gets two points, from, this is, I know, two but, points from three matches. I know, but Martin O'Neill is, is the sort of manager who feeds off the loyalty of his players and vice versa. So I, maybe he would feel that it would be disloyal to them to get a 19-year-old and throw him straight into the first team for the biggest game of the campaign. I, I don't agree with that, but that could yeah. be what's going on behind it. Behind uh, on that, I was thinking about O'Neill's own youth approach. Like, I think it would be wrong to really say that he, he's someone that's kind of anti-youth in the way Mourinho's been perceived. I mean, he, he threw in McGeady when he was so young, Samuel Miller. But from talking to people that have worked with O'Neill and played under him, he does favour big characters and kind of almost men who are leaders themselves which probably doesn't think a mere 19 year old is the moment and you know as, as you mentioned maybe not for a game like this you, you can imagine he, he would favour that kind of you know the perception of old fashioned aggression for what is effectively a derby Speaking of big characters Miguel uh, this was uh, crowning glory for Tim Sherwood who you know whatever people want to say about him has completely turned Aston Villa around and had an incredible uh, end of the season with them. Well, with the you know small proviso that they could easily still be relegated. Yes, uh, although I don't think they will. Uh, they were absolutely superb yesterday. I think people have to accept that there is a lot more to Sherwood's management than even the caricature. And to be fair to him, I think he's um, <laughs> he's beginning to take notice of that. I mean. Again, after that Spurs game, he was asked about, when it was mentioned about Grealish, what position he was playing and how it was, he was at the tip of a diamond. Sherwood actually kind of starts mocking himself and go, oh, what was it? Was it a diamond? I thought it was 4 3 3, and so kind of playing around with his fingers, doing kind of little, you know, <laughs> as if he, would, he was on a tactics board. Um, so, he, yeah, he's, uh, I, I think there's a lot of self reference at this point. And I think it's because of that personality, he's getting a response out of his players. In the mix zone afterwards, we're talking about five or six Villa players. 
uh, Tim, Tim Shea, or, sorry, Shea Gibbon was absolutely really enthusiastic about him. Talked about how he was such a leader at Blackburn when he was a player there. And the entire Villa squad seems to have responded to him. And you could, from that game as well, it's quite interesting. Liverpool, like you know, a famed tactician like Rodgers, tried five different formations and they still couldn't work Villa out. That's, I mean, five uh, different formations, though, <laughs> is actually not great, is it? I mean, it's like, sorry, but what exactly are you trying to do? You start the game with a, a, a three at the back formation. You change it after 20, 25 minutes. You change it again at half time. You're saying that Liverpool ended up with five formations in the game. Is this the clarity uh, that Brendan Rodgers has brought after three years of working? And if this is the clarity that three years of Rodgers gets you, uh, is it worth going uh, to, to get four years of Rodgers this time next year? Well, the murmurs after the game were that this could actually caused some big decisions um, at, at Liverpool in the summer. Um, personally speaking, I think they, they, they might stick with him, although then we couldn't get into a situation where, because there's already so much apparent distrust between various levels of the club, that we might see a situation where he's, he could lose his job next season. But yeah, um, in that regard, I, I think that was a, a massive, massive flop for Rodgers, because after last season, the way they've dropped out of the Champions League, he needed to have some sort of signpost of growth that, yes, they were still going players. And, and a trophy would have been so huge to that, especially for the fact that there's a real pattern developing with, with his team now that every time they have a game where something's on the line, they don't just lose it. The performance level absolutely plummets. So, Miguel, you left the ground, you went home, and you got involved in the Twitter spat with one of Ireland's great comedy writers, Graham Lennon. Do you stand by your original comments that Father Ted Series 3 suddenly becomes stretched and indeed forced? <laughs> I, I, I do indeed, yeah. Um, but it happens with all comedy, as I made the point. I think once they get to a certain point, um, the, the characters become caricatures rather than just characters. That It starts based on the kind of wackiness of what they do. Um, I mean, the, the initial discussion was about The Simpsons. But yeah, someone, someone copied... Um, Graham into that and he, he didn't take it too kindly. But Series 3, uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about the over for 75s soccer tournament in Series 3. We're talking about the uh, milk float. Yeah. We're talking rights. about kicking Bishop Brennan up the arse. He's, well, kick, kicking Bishop Brennan up the arse, that, that is a child's programme. You know, it used, to, it used to have this, you know, glorious ab- absurdity to Father Ted. And it went from that absurdity to this kind of this ju- ju- well, I'm not going to say juvenile rubbish because Father tr- or sorry, Series 3 still have brilliant moments. Yeah. Are you seriously about, telling uh, me that when you saw Bishop Brennan getting kicked up the RC, you didn't think it was funny. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't that madness, I have to say. But it, it's interesting that, that a man who's made a career out of you know skewering all, all and sundry in a show like that doesn't take too kindly to a, a small bit of criticism. All right, well, Miguel, we just thought it was important to talk about that big issue of the day. Thanks very much for, for your honesty. <laughs> Cheers, Miguel. Cheers, Miguel. Oh, I got it. 
admire a man who doesn't back down there, Miguel Delaney. Um, if that was, I must say that Twitter spat had all the ingredients mm. you, you really want, you know? Yeah, uh, I mean, it... it I'm, the greatest ever Twitter spat? <laughs> well, probably, well, the most recent one that comes to mind is... Um, I thought the Joey uh, Barton Gary Lineker one was quite that good. That was good, that was very well, good. You, I'll go back to you, Murph. What was the Joey Barton Gary Lineker one? Um, well, it was just a, uh, I mean... It, I mean, when I say it was good, I mean, it was just as a... As it a, ended abruptly, isn't that it? It ended very abruptly. When? As a disinterested observer. Just just Joey Barton started to... started to. Uh, Joey Barton is a man who's not afraid to go nuclear on Twitter, and everybody knows that about him now. So actually, he doesn't have as many Twitter spots as he used to. He's established certain, <laughs> a certain baseline respect. Nobody is winning. The, people just, uh, even if they disagree with what he says, they have a tendency to just let it pass. Didn't he threaten Inigar with... Um, yeah, Gary, look, we all know there are certain skeletons in your closet that I can reveal everybody's, right now. Everybody's got skeletons in Something their closet, though, but not so everybody's for to go on Twitter and, and tweet other people's skeletons <laughs> to three million people. <laughs> Joey Barton apparently is. Murph, well, I mean, it, just, it, it doesn't have anything on Joey Barton and Gary Lineker, but, I mean, the vicious Niall Horan, Pierce Morgan uh, Twitter spat before the Augusta Masters. Uh, it's vicious now, really, really disgusting on... Piers Morgan, so far at Nile official, I've watched you hit it in the water and fall over. Think I'll go to bed before things get even worse! Exclamation mark. Hashtag Augusta. You can see why this guy has so many followers. To which Nile Horan said, At Piers Morgan, when was the last time you caddied at the part three at the Masters, Piers? Oh yeah, never. Back to bed, old man. Oh, that's see that has that's some old-fashioned Irish wit there that Piers Morgan wasn't counting on. I know, I know. He he's a spunky young go-getter, is our Nile Horan. You don't mess with him. You just don't mess with this. Went on. Hang on a second, can't No, 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 that was it. Oh, that was no. it. That was the extent. That wasn't the. No, I'm sorry. A one off doesn't count as a spot. Gary Lineker and Pierce Morgan are both, of course, united in the fact that every time they, they both have a, a lot of horrors, and every time they tweet, uh, thousands of people tweet back with pretty much the same message with Lineker a reference to the fact that when he was playing in the World Cup for England against Ireland um, in 1990, he was caught short on the pitch. So it really doesn't matter what it is. That uh, Lineker's just tweeted about. The first 10 responses to any Gary Lineker tweet will be in reference to that unfortunate incident. Whereas with Pierce Morgan, uh, the first uh, few responses are always on the lines of, oh, Pierce, if only you had some secret way of finding out more information about this. Uh, <laughs> something along those lines. And okay. uh, he tends not to respond to those ones. Ha- they probably got old at this stage. We're going to get recording our second show of the week that's going to feature Leinster's heroic defeat in Marseille and also Martin Fletcher on the Bradford Fire, the book that he has published on that. Thanks very much, Ken, for this uh, contribution. Thank you, Murph, for your contribution. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Ken. And thanks so much for listening. You can check out irishtimes.com forward slash secondcaptains and follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains. We'll chat to you later. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.